It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. That, of course, is 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. And you can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. If you download the iHeartRadio app, type in our coordinates, and then you can take us with you anywhere you go by listening to us anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show David McDonald. He's a professor of political science at the University of Guelph and focuses on comparative Indigenous politics in Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. And speaking of New Zealand, I believe that's where uh, Professor McDonald is um, online with me for the show today. So, David, is that right? You're in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. I'm in the uh, the top of the South Island of New Zealand, and uh, I'm here on sabbatical for the year. Uh, I'm a research fellow at the law school in Auckland, and uh, I'm doing a bit of work. There's uh, uh, something similar to the Truth and Reconciliation Commission going on here. It's uh, uh, it's a Royal Commission on Abuse and Care, the biggest Royal Commission in New Zealand history. So mm. I've been following that pretty closely, wow. um, participating a bit in, uh, yeah, in, in kind of looking at that and making some comparisons with Canada, because there's a lot of similarities, maybe a surprising number of similarities uh, mm. between the two cases. And how long have you been down there now? I left uh, in mid-December. So I've been down here since, uh, well, basically since around Christmas time. Had a couple of weeks in quarantine. Right. And uh, yeah, so I've been around since uh, since that time. Okay, so you've been down there since all of the uh, the news of late that has broken in Canada about the, the findings of the um, the burials, the, the unnamed burial sites, and, and those things happening out in British Columbia and, and Saskatchewan. Yeah, yeah, I've been. I mean, I've been following it pretty closely, and right. uh, I wrote another piece for the conversation on that as well. Uh, I've been giving a few interviews about things, uh, right. but yeah, yeah, I've been following it at a distance yeah. um, and talking to you know friends, Indigenous collaborators, right. and others that I work with about the topic. And yeah, uh, I mean, I'm that, from Saskatchewan, so ah. it's uh, certainly hit hit home in, in a lot of ways right. uh, in that way as well. Well, I bring that up, of course, because that's that's what we're going to be talking to you about today is an article that you, yeah. you did uh, author in the conversation, and it is called Canada's Hypocrisy, Recognizing Genocide Except Its Own Against Indigenous Peoples. Now, that's the that's the title of your article, but you are also the author of a book, and uh, it's The Sleeping Giant Awakens, Genocide in Dizzy, Indi- Indian Residential Schools and the Challenge of Conciliation. Uh, it was uh, published in 2019 with the University of Toronto. It was a finalist in the Best Subsequent Books uh, Prize for the Native American and Indigenous Studies Association. And you also, I see, have worked with the, the Truth and Reconciliation uh, of Canada. Yeah, yeah, I did. Uh, I did some work for them in 2012. Actually, I was I was hired, and that was uh, to to look at the question of genocide in the residential schools. Mm-hmm. So, I wrote a short uh, report uh, for them on that topic. Um, and at that time, and even before, uh, uh, Justice Sinclair had been looking at the question of genocide and had been talking about it quite a bit. So, mm-hmm. uh, they wanted someone who wrote quite a bit on genocide to to look at that topic in some more detail. And and uh, so. Uh, the book is in part based on some of the research I did for that, but also for some other on some other things as well. And I obviously make the conclusion that I think it, the residential schools violate the Genocide Convention, um, which at the time I was making it was probably less of a popular argument than than it is now. Mm. Um, although, as you probably know, there's uh, there's people who who dispute that some fairly high profile people, uh, not just Conrad Black, but mm. uh, many many others as well. 
All right. Now, before we go any further, I also want to mention, you you point this out in your article, uh, and that is if there's anyone listening to this program and uh, they are somehow triggered by some of the information that we'll be discussing on the show, um, there is a line that you can call. It's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, uh, the Indian Residential School Crisis Line. It's one 866 I just want to make sure that we get that out there in case anyone uh, feels they need the urge to to talk with someone. So, uh, you know, the title of your book, before we get into the article, and, and the second part of the challenge of conciliation, why do you feel that it was important to, to put that in there? Because I think um, if you're looking at relationships between Indigenous peoples and settlers, I don't know that we have any history of real conciliation. I mean, the idea of reconciliation, I mm. suppose, is... Um, I suppose the the TRC term came out of the South African situation, right. um, but uh, and there are, as I discussed in the book, there are many forms of reconciliation that that may well be happening, and, and part of those might be within Indigenous families and communities, survivors reconciling with themselves, mm. uh, reconciliation with lands, plants, waters. Uh, but when it comes, I think to kind of partnership or, or any sort of uh, ethos of partnership between indigenous peoples and settlers or indigenous nations and, and the, the crown, the provincial or federal crown. I, I think we're, we're very, you know, we haven't really had those, those periods of time. We've had, we've had an ongoing process of settler colonialism with uh, different ongoing genocidal processes and, and not, not, not periods where everything was awesome. And then mm-hmm. it went bad. It's not like mm-hmm. a, a narrative arc of a classic work of fiction where mm-hmm. things are good and then they go bad and then they get, mm-hmm they get good again. I think in part, the term reconciliation sort of implies that that narrative arc that we see in fiction or often in Western literature, but that's not really, I don't think the case of, of Canadian history. Mm. So that's why I put the word conciliation in there instead. Cause I don't, mm. I don't, I don't think we had that, that golden era of, uh, of partnership that, uh, that the word reconciliation would imply. Now, in in your article, of course, you start off by saying that the Canadian Parliament is sometimes at the cutting edge of genocide recognition and human rights. And uh, you go into talk about recently the the recognition that Canada made uh, with China's treatment. Uh, Of course, China retaliated by coming back to Canada saying, what are you talking about? You've got your own, uh, you know, uh, fish to fry here. Well, I think I was just trying to tease out the issue of hypocrisy, which I think is, um, um, I had a look this morning. I mean, the, the article's got about 20,000 reads. So mm. I think if I just said uh, it's genocide, we could recognize it. I don't, I don't think it would have had the same kind of, I suppose, hook in, in the sense. So, uh, and I've seen that too with, uh, with the issue of the Catholic Church and how they're um, $21 million short on, uh, on fundraising for survivors, but yet they had that uh, $28.5 million cathedral they built in Saskatoon, for example. Uh, and I think you know, maybe news stories that tend to capture the public's attention are ones where there's a blatant hypocrisy going on. Uh, in that case, obviously, there's, there's a lot of money um, amongst Catholics in Saskatchewan to put up a new cathedral with solar, power, solar panels, but there's not money to, to, uh, to, to provide for survivors in terms yeah. of redress and things like that. So that was kind of what I was getting at with that. I mean, I think I think it's important to recognize the, the Uyghur situation is genocide. But, uh, but every, every year that I'm writing on this topic, uh, government's recognizing more and more genocides that aren't Canada's genocide. And it's, it's just getting more and more hypocritical. So uh, I think the first time I said this, I think that I said there are like four or five recognized genocides. Canada, uh, 
uh, Canada's genocide should be the fifth or the sixth one. And now mm-hmm. it's like, what are we at, like eight or nine recognized yeah. genocides. So it's, it's getting worse all the time. You know, speaking of that, there's that other strange thing that, that is, uh, surrounds this. Like you're saying, it's, it, people seem, and Canadian people seem to, because they're in the news and because these stories are in the news, we tend to know more or have more information. And you point this out in your article in, about how, how little Canadians know about the residential school system and, and the facts surrounding it. Um, yeah. So it's you know it's kind of again it's ironic that we that there is more news uh, about what's happening elsewhere than than there is here. Yeah. No, I think it's very true, and something I talk about in the book as well. But it's uh, it's that if you've got if you've got an ongoing situation of of colonial settler colonial violence, if you've got all the institutions in place that are committing that violence all the time, uh, it's not controversial or unremarkable. It's just the status quo. Right. And. Uh, in many ways, the status quo doesn't sell news. Uh, mm-hmm. You get a military coup in Burma, sure. and uh, people are being, you know, attacked on the streets. That's news because it's it's sharp and sharp. It's something new, something different uh, from the ordinary. But uh, I mean, often settler colonialism has been described as slow violence. It's it's a form of uh, of continual uh, oppression, you know, continual systemic racism, and and so that doesn't. Uh, it can get a little bit better. It can get a little bit worse. Uh, you can have really bad instances of things which would make the news. But uh, but there is that constant pressure all the time. And, and constant pressure, constant systemic stuff, institutionalized problems are not are not really newsworthy in the same way. Mm. Uh, and I think that's that's part of the problem. Probably uh, they should be, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but they're not. Well, speaking of newsworthy, now we do have the evidence. Now we've got these these ground yeah. ground radar that are are showing the 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 bodies uh, of these in these unmarked graves and the mass graves. Um, do you think this might be a turning point? Uh, yeah, I'd like to think so. Um, I think that uh, I mean, there's been yeah, I, I think it is a turning point in that, uh, and I guess I kind of understand why, but at the same time. Uh, I mean, most most First Nations knew about about this about these these graves, the existence of them. Uh, the TRC had documented you know, four thousand missing children. Uh, the commissioner said it could be six or, or more missing children. They called it cultural genocide. Murray Sinclair privately called it genocide mm-hmm. in press conferences, things like that. Uh, but I, th- I think maybe the, the, the physical people emo- emotionally connected settlers certainly with uh, with the discoveries of these graves. And I think that uh, probably, yeah, I, th- I think it's, it's reached an important turning point. I mean, there seems to be a lot more pressure uh, on the government to do something when you've got the conservatives wanting the government to uh, to front up money for the ground penetrating radar. I think that's something, especially when uh, uh, Chuck Strahl, who uh, and, and the Harper government would patently refused the TRC funds to to look into this issue. And now the Conservatives are, I mean, saying that it should be done. So I think I, I think even the opposition to this has has fundamentally changed, which is interesting. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I'm I'm hoping that it's it's the start of something. Um and, and maybe maybe the start of a of another genocide motion in, in the House of Commons to to recognize this as genocide as well. You know, I remember years ago, the word genocide being brought up in this, uh, I believe it was a little matter of genocide. 
Does that title sound oh, familiar to you? Yeah, that's a book by Ward Churchill. That's it, uh, yes. It was, uh, I think he wrote that in 1994. Yes. And... Uh, yeah, he was looking at uh, a genocide in the U.S. against, uh, I guess, at the time, uh, it would have been called American Indians. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, that was that was the focus of that. And he, he went through the um, the genocide convention and, mm. uh, and some other stuff as well. It was a pretty detailed book, uh, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, I just remember that it, it also brought up the, the topic of uh, residential schools here and the idea of genocide. There wasn't uh, the desire to have it called genocide at that time yeah i think that was part of it um the other thing with churchill's book as well is that he um he used uh the word holocaust a lot in there. oh yes right. so he was always making uh comparisons to the holocaust um and that was like the time i think schindler's list had come out the year before mm, uh, mm. there was the u.s holocaust memorial museum so not only was he trying to promote uh knowledge about genocide in an indigenous context but he was also making all these comparisons with the Holocaust. So he got a lot of pushback about that. Mm-hmm. And um, I think he was, there were elements of that book I thought were a bit sensationalistic. I think he was, he sort of thought he would get more attention if mm-hmm. he was using the Holocaust a lot in, mm-hmm. in the discussion. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't, I don't really know that that was necessary. I mean, there are some, some really good books in Canada uh, that came out around the same time. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of it now, but it was uh, uh, Chris, John and Young. Uh, had written a book, I think it was called Accounting for Genocide, in which they mm-hmm. look at uh, the residential schools as genocide. And uh, and then there was another book, um, uh, Theory in a News book, which came out later. Oh, no, that was the Accounting for Genocide book. Mm-hmm. The other one was, I can't remember the name of the other one offhand now. But there are a number of books in Canada that also looked at genocide. And uh, and they were, I think, quite well received. Certainly the one by uh, by Chris John was, uh, was really good. It was um, It was actually the uh, it was a submission to the Royal Commission on Aboriginal Peoples, and then he later published it as a book. Um, but there's been like discussion of genocide in Canada for a long time. I think the yeah. first one went back to like 1972 that I could mm-hmm. find. But there were people at um, uh, different Indigenous leaders talking about cultural genocide back back in the late 60s, mm-hmm. uh, and probably before that time as well. So, uh, so this is a topic that has uh, you know decades old roots in the right. country since well. Since right. before I was born, anyway. Right. That's why I was asking you, do you think this is, might be a turning point, that, that it's finally sunk in, that this is a reality, that this really did happen, and it was as bad as Indigenous people have been saying so, so that it now finally becomes a Canadian issue, not just an Indigenous issue? Yeah, I'm hoping so. Um, but then again, I mean, uh, I opened up uh, the National Post the other day, and there was Conrad Black basically... Um, kind of downplaying a lot of things. So I, I don't know. I mean, it's uh, I read you know sometimes the sort of writer center newspapers, and I, I don't I don't get the sense that for those people things have changed a great deal. Uh, I think people are more careful in their discourse; they're more careful what they say. But uh, when all these statues uh, are pulled down, and you know, it's just that you know you've got Pallister and others talking about vandalism and and using other words like last year Jason Kenny was was. I mean, I think they've even, some of them have used the word terrorist and stuff mm, when they're talking yeah. about or terrorism, maybe not yes, terrorist, but, yes. uh, and so when I hear words like that, I know that, uh, you know, there's still, and, and then I have Facebook feeds as well. Some of my, I mean, I know people that are sort of right of center and, and I like to keep them as Facebook friends to see what kind of news they circulate. Uh, and, uh, and there's, there's still a pretty hardcore of people there who, who are not, whose views have not changed. Mm. 
I mean, I think they, they think something bad happened, but they still have this idea that, you know, Western civilization can, can solve the problems. So it's like, <laughs> you know, there were bad things that happened. Right, there were bad right, apples, but, right. uh, but Western civilization can still come in and save the day. And right. there's still a sense that this stuff happened in the past. So, yeah, we're discovering more about the past, but then they will say, well, that's not what's happening now. Right. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, and then there's a lot of hatred against Trudeau as well. Like, and so it's, it's interesting. It, uh, I think for, for, I think for the majority of Canadians, probably the majority of settlers, they, they're on board with changes taking place and they realize the, the severity of it. But I think there's, there's still a large, a large proportion of Canadian, at least settlers who, you know, are, are not going to be on board with, with any of this and who, who still don't don't see the need to change. Uh, I think that's that's a problem, but it is borne out borne out when it, when you see the the polling that Enveronics and other and mm-hmm. other groups do. Uh, there's still like maybe 25, 30% of people who who really don't get it. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it's cuz they don't want to get it. So yeah, uh, that's exactly. that's my view on that. Right, right. Unfortunately. Yeah. You're listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses, and I am speaking with David McDonald. He is a professor of political science at the University of Guelph, and I am talking with him about an, uh, an article he authored in The Conversation. It is entitled Canada's Hypocrisy, Recognizing Genocide Except Its Own Against Indigenous Peoples. Now, part of the article, uh, David, that you... you uh, mention Senator Murray Sinclair, you talk about him, I believe you spoke with him, and there's, if I'm not mistaken, a quote of what he said to you. Is this right for for your book? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he he agreed to be interviewed for the book. So we had uh, quite a detailed conversation about a lot of different topics. And uh, um, one of the issues, and and then I did a transcription, and I I cleared various quotes that I was going to use in the book and publications beforehand. So, you know, obviously to make sure, and, and I do this with all my interviews. So, mm. uh, yeah, so we didn't, uh, we didn't interview. Um, I believe that, that would have been like four, four and a half years ago now. Uh, and, uh, so I put that quote in there because that, that is what he'd mentioned that, uh, um, he did want to see if he could go further and, uh, and, and say that it was genocide, but the legal team had said no. Um, uh, so, I mean, the, the TRC, was great in many ways, but yeah. it, it was, it was restricted in some respects by yes. its mandate. Yeah. It's supposed to be post-judicial. And so there were certain things that uh, the lawyers told uh, the commission was off the table. And so they right. had to basically play by, by the rules yes. uh, that they were given. Yes. Now you, you say that, but then you also mentioned that, that the, the TRC did go on to address the idea of genocide, calling it genocide and, and, um, and saying that, that the government was culpable Um for even more yeah i mean they said it was a cultural genocide but then there are bits when they kind of later on in the report where they sort of intimate that it might be genocide but they can't they don't come out and say it directly in written form in in the in the report in the final reports that they do uh but then again but mario sinclair i mean he'll he was going i think two weeks after the final report uh he talked about genocide like not cultural genocide but genocide uh in, in a radio interview, I think it was, mm-hmm. I might be mistaken about that, but, uh, uh, so people in the TRC would, would definitely talk outside of their official capacity, uh, about it being genocide. And mm-hmm. they, they didn't, th- there wasn't any kind of, uh, hiding that, uh, you know, as, as, as people who had heard a lot of survivors, they, 
they knew that that was something that was that was being discussed a lot, and uh, and it was important to to, to discuss uh, publicly. Yes, yeah, for sure. And the other thing, and the other person you mentioned is Ralph Lemkin, and you talk about uh, about what he wrote about genocide because it does not have to mean death. No, definitely not. Yeah. Uh, and what Lemkin was arguing too is that there were. Uh, he gives a lot of examples. He's right. He's, he's the guy that came up with the term genocide and uh, mm-hmm. basically worked tirelessly to to have genocide made a crime in international law, which it was in, in 1948. But uh, so Lemkin basically said, like he, he looked at examples where you get mass kidnapping of kids from their families to try to convert them and turn them into something else. Uh, the Nazis, for example, uh, a lot of sort of blonde haired, blue eyed Polish and other Slavic kids were kidnapped and basically forcibly Germanized. And if, uh, if they couldn't be Germanized, a lot of them were killed uh, if, they, if they couldn't uh, speak the language. And, uh, and so that was one example. But there were other examples as well that he gave of the Ottoman Empire uh, mm. kidnapping kids and stuff. So the idea of kidnapping kids uh, and taking uh, generations away from communities so they can't pass on their culture and knowledge and their, their governments uh, is really important. I mean, one one of the big things I look at in the book is that um, when you're talking about genocide, it's not it's not just the destruction of peoples and communities, but it's also the destruction of governments as well. I mm, mean, uh, mm, right? Genocide is about is about destroying, trying to destroy civilizations and governments that have been functioning pretty well for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. And that's that's kind of what we're talking about here as well. So this is not just individual abuses or collective abuses in schools. It's uh, it's also the destru- you know the attempted destruction of indigenous governments mm. with very close ties to to territory and and all of that that goes with it as well. Well, uh, there's a number of things there that come to mind that, uh, that that of late have have been of interest. So, for instance, you mentioned land back, and of course, I'm not sure if you know this, but with uh, just within the last few days, uh, the situation in and around Caledonia, where, where there's been a a, yet a second sort of standoff about the land in and around the Caledonia uh, tract, the Haldeman tract. And uh, just recently, the uh, developers backed out and said they were mm. no longer going to be pursuing this and that they're going to be giving the money back to the people that were going to have their homes built. Um, I, I, thought, I thought that was really interesting that that happened, especially now. And uh, secondly, what you you know, talking about the land and learning from the land and getting back to the land, we're, we're in a climate crisis, and and it sure yeah. seemed to me that what I hear a lot of people talking about, whether you're in, indigenous or non-indigenous, it seems like the idea is that we need to clean up our act and start to do exactly what indigenous people did, and that was live light on the land and live in harmony with the planet so that it can sustain us. We can't keep abusing yeah. it like we have been, and and not not paying attention to the consequences. So uh, it, it, it's interesting that uh, both those, those things happen. Plus, Trudeau announced the new Governor General designate Mary Simon, an Indigenous woman. Yeah, so, yeah I saw that. Yeah. You know, so there's some, there's some things happening that seem to be positive. I agree. I mean, I think there's some positive developments. Um, and that's good. I, I hope more. I hope they continue. Uh, well, I, I hear what you're saying, and I guess uh, as long as we, we are moving in the right direction, because we aren't going to fix this overnight, all of these issues. Uh, it's no, that's some for time sure. To correct, uh, to correct it and, and get things moving back in, in the right direction. We're, we're sort of a little bit off topic, but... Um, oh, that's fine. But I'm just wondering if there's anything else about the article or, or about your book that you feel that we haven't touched on that you, you think is important to mention. 
Um, well, I think the issue of, uh, of genocide recognition is probably a really important issue. Um, so uh, Leah Gazan introduced a motion. Uh, she's, as you probably know, an NDP MP from Winnipeg. Uh, and, uh, and she introduced a motion to, uh, to a non-binding motion to have genocide recognized in the residential schools. Uh, it didn't pass. That was just a few weeks ago now. Mm. Um, and uh, another MP, uh, Robert Falcon Willette, back in, I think it was 2017, 2018, had maybe earlier than that introduced a motion uh, as well. Oh, it was a, a bill of genocide recognized. Right. So I guess what I'd maybe want to say is that uh, people have to keep trying. I think it was the Canadian History Association like last week passed a thing recognizing genocide in the residential schools. Um, I'm trying to get the Canadian Political Science Association to do the same thing. Uh, but if you've got like associations of lawyers, uh, other associations, municipalities, provinces, territories, uh, recognizing that genocide occurred, uh, I think that, you know, that's, that's important because it, it, and I mean, it could, it could just be a recognition that the, uh, you know, the, these commission reports are accurate that, that you know, that they when they talk about genocide or cultural genocide, that it's, that it's true, you know? And uh, so I think the, the, and maybe this is a way that like settlers can also step up with some of this stuff is try to get these recognition uh, motions passed provincially and federally so that, uh, so that there's, there isn't this hypocrisy anymore. I think that's really important. Um, and again, so that settlers understand that um, it wasn't just, Indigenous kids who are abused and, and families traumatized, but but uh, you know, but there was a concerted attack on civilizations, on on governments, uh, and governments with territory, and and governments that functioned really well for many thousands of years. You know, so it's uh, and and so part of a conciliation process is about trying to restore those governments on their land so they can they can function uh, again, and maybe maybe the the functioning will be different because. You know, we're living in the 21st century, but right, right. but they'll find their ways of functioning that work for their people, and mm-hmm. uh, and that's something that that has to happen. And I think I think that the, a genocide motion can can help certainly us as settlers to accept that responsibility uh, in in a more tangible way because we can we can put what has happened and what's going on uh, on par with some of these other genocides that we learn about in school that we recognize um, because if we can say. Uh, Oh, it's pretty bad, but you know it's not genocide. Uh, that that can be a bit of a cop out, and it can sure. allow yeah. it can allow us to uh, to skirt responsibility. And right. uh, that's something that that I think we we need to deal with. Right. Okay, we'll have to leave it there, David. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to join us on the show and talk uh, to us about uh, your your article in the conversation entitled Canada's Hypocrisy, Recognizing Genocide, Except Its Own Against Indigenous Peoples, but also that you're the author of the book The Sleeping Giant Awakens, Genocide in Indian, Indian Residential Schools and the Challenge of Conciliation, which uh, people can find online and uh, and check that out as well. And uh, I just want to say that uh, as long as you're, uh, you know, probably going to be continuing to put out some articles, I'll keep looking for yep. you. And we'd love to have you back on uh, again to discuss uh, future issues around this. And hopefully, let's, uh, let's, let's, let's hope that it's going to be going in the right direction. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, there's a lot of goodwill out there and some good people. So, uh, so I'm hopeful, too. Yeah, very happy to come back again. And I'll, uh, 
I'll keep writing articles. So, uh, <laughs> okay. and I'm working on another book. So, okay. uh, yeah, okay. very uh, happy to come back. You know, one more thing just before we leave, and that is, I remember hearing uh, an elder, I believe it was an elder that said this the other day about the findings about the mass grave and about the unmarked graves that were being found. And uh, he, they said, maybe they'll, maybe the people will listen now because it's the dead that are talking. That's really powerful. Yeah, it is. It really is. And and uh, let's hope that people do listen. And, and let's hope that, that there there is good change happening in the future. Yeah, I hope so, too. Thank you so much for inviting me. That's David McDonald. He's a professor of political science at the University of Guelph, and he focuses on comparative Indigenous politics in Canada, New Zealand, and the United States. That's this part of the show. Please don't go away. We'll be right back with more right here on Moment of Truth right after this. <laughs> Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app. Download the app, punch in one of those coordinates, and listen anywhere you go. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show today Alexis Shotwell. She is a professor at Carleton University in the Department of Sociology and Anthropology. And that, of course, is on unceded Algonquin land, as she points out. Her academic work addresses settler colonization, impurity, environmental justice, racial formation, disability, unspeakable and unspoken knowledge. That's interesting. We'll have to talk about that a little bit. Sexuality, gender and political transformation. Her political work focuses on queer liberation, indigenous solidarity, and feminist community education. It's a pleasure to welcome Alexis to the show. She wrote an article in The Conversation entitled, Amid More Shocking Residential Schools, Discoveries, Non-Indigenous People Must Take Action. And so we're going to be talking to her about that article. And I just wanted to let you know that if you find that you are triggered by any of the comments in our conversation today, or if you have been affected by the residential school system, and you find you need help, there is a contact number that you can reach out to 24 hours a day, seven days a week. It is the Indian Residential Schools Crisis Line at 1-866-925-4419. So Alexis, welcome to the show. Thank you, David. Really good to be here. No, now you know. As I was just giving that opening there and talking about the in, the kind of thing that you look at, that unspeakable and unspoken knowledge. What what does that refer to? Yeah. So um, I was trained as a philosopher, and in philosophy, when you talk about knowledge, uh, quite a lot of the time, the way we think and talk about it is the kind of things that you can make claims about the world and assess whether they're true or false. And that is indeed really important, right? Mm -hmm. Having uh, things that you can put into words and other people can assess. Those are really key kinds of knowledge Mm -hmm. that we have. Mm -hmm. Um, But also there are forms of knowledge that we have that are bodily, that are um, in our emotions, that are held as common sense. So Mm -hmm. things that you kind of know, but you've never really looked at or thought about. Mm. Uh, So these are all forms of implicit understanding. Mm. Mm. And I'm especially interested in them because when we're doing work against racism and for justice, I think most of us know on some level that it's not actually enough just to correct people's wrong beliefs, the, the kinds of things they can say in words. But we also need to work on 
um, addressing how we feel, the things that are commonsensical, that are going without saying, but might be wrong. So it's helpful to have a, a kind of concept or a way of understanding all these forms of knowledge that you can't quite or can't yet put into words. Hmm. Yeah, and somehow I feel that ties into this this article you wrote because you address things like uh, a shame, for instance. You talk about in your article quite a bit on that level of feeling. Definitely, exactly. Yeah, and one of the things that has felt really vital to me, especially um, I'm a white person, a settler immigrant to Canada, and. So one of the things that's felt very useful for me is to say, we can have different ways to talk about the feelings that we're having and actually having better names or better explanatory resources can be helpful for especially white settlers to identify what's going on. Um, so one of the distinctions I make in the article is between guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. And maybe I'll say a little something about that. Would that be useful? Please. Yeah. So um, I, I started thinking about this partially because I was grew up in the U.S. and and there a lot of the um, conversation about race really centers on whiteness and blackness and mm -hmm. the inheritances of chattel slavery. And and a lot of us white people there say, um, you know, I didn't personally own slaves. Mm. You know, why should I feel bad about mm. this? But I feel something. You mm. know. Mm -hmm. So guilt is the name for that scholars give to when you've done something wrong, right? right. So when you've um, been mean to someone, uh, when you've been careless and you broke something, when you, um, you know, stole something against your better judgment, mm -hmm. any of the things that you do right. that you look back on and you say, I. I knew I didn't want to do that, or I wish I hadn't done that. Right. And you can even feel guilt about things that you didn't feel were a big deal at the time, or you didn't have the capacities to recognize them. So sometimes people feel guilty about being mean to a classmate when they were a little kid, you know, and they look back and they say, oh, I shouldn't have acted like that. So all of those things are about our actions as individuals, and, and that's how we we can usually name them really accurately as guilt. Mm. But in thinking about residential schools, even people who are um, members of church congregations that ran schools or um, were more directly connected, a lot of, there are definitely people who appropriately should feel guilt right now, who are still alive, who ran these institutions, right? So they are appropriately feeling guilt. But shame names something that is about our being. And most of the time it's uh, collective, right? It's in some way about our membership in a, a category of people. Mm. It's not about an action. It's about something, that way that we are. Mm. And usually we should reject it. Uh, so we might be uh, made to feel ashamed about things that are not shameworthy at all. Right. Um, but it's a useful thing to talk about when our country has behaved in ways that we are implicated in, that, um, that we feel like just through being Canadian, I'm connected to this, even if I haven't taken any personal specific actions that were wrong. 
that's when it's helpful to have a word like shame to name that feeling. Mm. Yeah, uh, as you were talking there, and you say a group, uh, uh, the first word that came to mind in this context was Canada. And, and I guess this is part of where you're going with this article, is that is trying to take it beyond an Indigenous issue and make it a Canadian issue, which which is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, I started off by talking about Justin Trudeau saying, you know, continual uh, return to this idea that this is a shameful chapter, shameful policy. Mm. Um, Mark Miller, who's the Indigenous Services uh, minister, mm-hmm. you know, called it shameful mm-hmm. that the Pope has not apologized for the Catholic Church's, church's yep. role mm-hmm. in running um, residential institutions. And so the other piece there is um, shame as a feeling tends to make us close off and turn inward rather than turn toward action. I think many of us can remember times where we felt shame and we just wanted to disappear. We just wanted to close down. Mm -hmm. So especially for anyone who's feeling shame about, again, not just um, residential, Indian residential schools as institutions, but about the broader situation that's happening. So many, many people are discovering for the first time, many settlers are discovering for the first time, the number of ongoing uh, continuities yeah. between the genocidal practices of residential schools and ongoing Canadian policies that um, trample on Indigenous sovereignty, that steal Indigenous kids. Mm-hmm. So these lines of continu- continuity between um, forced schooling mm-hmm. and theft of kids then right. and, um, you know, forced adoption and the Canadian child services um, constellation. So when someone like the prime minister or the indigenous service minister, all the way down to sort of me as an ordinary white settler, if we feel shame and we respond to that by stopping, right, by turning inward, that uh, means that we're continuing to perpetuate the shame-worthy situation. So the key thing about this is to say, it's, yes, people feel this, and not everyone does. Mm. I've had a lot of email from people who say, I don't feel any shame, I just feel anger, Mm. or I don't feel shame. I mean, I've had a lot of also email from just really like straight up racist, Mm. um, you know, I'm proud of everything I've done, we, right. we've done as a country. So right. there's a lot of different categories sure. of responses here. Um, and it's also fine to have other kinds of emotions, not I, everything's good. You know, mm-hmm. those people, mm-hmm. I think you need to reconsider. Right. But people who are like, I feel no shame. I just feel anger. Yeah. Same question then. When you have that feeling, how do you turn toward helpful, useful, collective action? Right. Right. So... So whatever feeling you have, what are you going to do with it? Yeah. The other thing I think about, just in terms of this shame around this this issue and, and people trying to come to terms with it, however they uh, are trying to come to terms with it, to know, to learn this information, uh, it's it's overwhelming in in many ways to, to know the scope of how long this went on, the fact that... that no one learned about this in school. I can, I can well imagine it would, it would, 
you know, it would throw your emotions into turmoil to some degree, I guess, because you're wondering how, how do you deal with this? What do I do with this new, new information I've been given? And, and how do mm-hmm. I approach this uh, on a personal level to, to, to do something? What can I do? Yeah. And this connects into some of my, a lot of my other work um, is about um, imperfection and um, there being no innocence or moral purity mm. because many times when when settlers learn new to us information we tend to respond to that by um, deciding that we're going to really educate ourselves more and this is a it's a good thing to do right mm. like one of the things that has been I think frustrating for anyone who well, I'll tell you this little story. I, sure. I used to teach in um, Sudbury at Laurentian University, okay. and mm. um, I taught a class called Unsettling Canada that uh, looked at sort of, it was right around the 20th anniversary of the uh, Oka crisis at Kanasatake. Yep. Um, and so we were reading things about that and also about residential schools. We were reading about forced internment of Japanese Canadians yep. during World War II. Mm-hmm. Lots of things. Sure. And I was waiting at the bus stop with one of my students, my white settler students, and a, another um, Indigenous student. And my settler student said, Alexis, I, I just don't know how to live now that I know these things. How do you, how do you go on, mm. you know? Um, and she was really being very genuine. Sure. You know, she, she was like, she said, I, this isn't the Canada that I've been proud of all my life. Right. Um, and my indigenous student whose mom had been a residential, is a residential school survivor. And her mom had actually come to class with her a couple of times. She said, she said, I know you're learning about this for the first time, but I've known about this my whole life. Mm. Um, it's not news to me. Right. So one of the things that I think, is helpful for us settlers, or that has been helpful for me as someone learning things in an ongoing way, is to say, we're going to always discover um, things that we didn't know. And the question there, just as the question around what we do after the feeling, after feeling bad, feeling shame or anger, or is what do we do? So, um, it is good for people to read the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Mm-hmm. It is shocking that there's an entire volume, uh, you know, volume four is entirely suggesting that the Canadian government do this, you know, mm-hmm. it, and it's shocking to be, to discover that, you know, they just didn't. <laughs> right. It's, but, but then we begin to see this pattern that every time through, you know, in my research, I look back and Indigenous people and some settler allies have been have been calling for investigation into the unmarked graves. You know, you, you find people reporting on this in the 60s in the papers mm. and um, different, uh, it comes into the media over and over again over the years. Um, so... Just having more ed- education doesn't change right. what's happening. Right. Um, so we can always start with that, but it's helpful to say, 
what are the things that actually deflect action and what are the things that open it up? Mm. Um, so just having a lot of settlers sitting and reading the TRC reports and calls for action, right. I mean, it's better than nothing, Yes. but the, they're calls for action, yes. <laughs> you know? Yes. Um, and so that's what's really interesting for us to do. And that's always going to be very risky for settlers. It's always going to be more risky for us to try to act, um, to support and to be in solidarity with struggle, that's always going to be more risky than just reading a book is. Right. You're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa, 106.5 in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. I'm your host, David Moses. This is Moment of Truth, and my guest is Alexis Shotwell, and she is a professor at Carleton University. I'm speaking with her about an article she authored in The Conversation entitled, Amid More Shocking Residential Schools Discoveries, Non-Indigenous People Must Take Action. Now, you just said risky. When you say risky, what, what do you actually mean by that? Well, I mean a lot of things. One thing is just about people's personal experience. It's scary mm-hmm. to um, it's scary to try to do something and maybe mess up. Right? right. Sure. It's it's risky in the sense that when non-indigenous people start taking action, we can actually make things worse. Right. Especially for people we know. Yep. So, um, you know, several of my indigenous friends have just laid a moratorium on any conversation with their non-Indigenous friends Mm. about this because Mm. it's very painful. And they've been asked over and over again in their life to be like the Native informant and and help educate someone. So one form of risk is just, you could actually mess up and really hurt someone. Um, Another kind of risk is that um, non-Indigenous people, we have a tendency to think, and this is true also just of people starting to get involved in social movements. So so people will come to the first or second meeting of something that's been, ex- you know, working on a political issue for 10 or 20 years or, uh, you know, since colonization, and they'll be like, I have a great idea, mm-hmm. you know, let's do this. So there's right. this quality that is really lovely in many ways and also is sort of like and sometimes those like I have a new great idea can be a new great idea but often it's like no just actually listen for a little while like and and stuff these envelopes or make these phone calls like don't don't want to be the person who's holding the megaphone or writing the editorial yes Yes. Um, but I think interpersonally the thing that a lot of um a lot of white people and settlers experience is a, a discomfort and a difficulty with just being wrong, you know, yep. um, or messing up. Mm-hmm. And so this is why I'm really profoundly inspired by the capacity for us to um, learn and study and try things. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, some good points uh, about that. It goes back to the idea that you uh, 
explain in the article about guilt and shame once again. And uh, you also do, of course, say for you give some examples about where people, for instance, can look to try and get involved by supporting initiatives, uh, by uh, donating, by you know uh, challenging your your church congregation, by uh, you know doing steps in in that way. Like you said, not not necessarily uh, coming up with the great idea, but just being there and and helping out, like you said, stuffing envelopes or whatever it might be in an initiative that is already uh, underway. Yeah, and some of the time that will be taking more direct action. Mm. So I study, you know, in part movements of the past. So in the 1990s, there were limited but very real uh, settler formations. So for example, in Toronto, anti-racist action members um, organized very actively against the, at the time, the Ontario Fishing and Hunting Association was, um, had been infiltrated by outright white supremacists. And they were explicitly, um, they were explicitly pursuing uh, anti-Indigenous white supremacist line. And white anti-racist action members would go and talk to, you know, ordinary white rural Ontarians and explain to them what was happening. Mm. And they actually managed with, I think, um, quite a lot of acuity to take back that hunting and fishing association and transform it. Mm. Um, and many of these histories are are untold in ways that um, speak well to people not trying to like hog the spotlight and feel like they're so special, but they're worth remembering because it it is not the case that white people are useless in struggle. Mm. Right now, many people may have seen at the Ferry Creek blockade one of the actions was a bunch of, you know, mostly white settler senior citizens in their 70s, 80s, and in one case, 90s, blocking some of the um, development that's happening on on that unceded land, mm. right? That's, uh, that should not be happening. Or there are many examples and they're worth looking toward. Right. But in order for people to be helpful, white people and settlers more generally, do need to have a sense of what our politics actually are mm. and need to begin to skill up, right? Mm-hmm. So um, so identifying what are the ways that we can be helpful and useful. Um, and this is, you know, part of what uh, Chris Dixon calls being sort of the nobody special who care about the world, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so not trying to make it about us, mm-hmm. but recognizing that actually we do have important things to offer. Right. You know, when you were talking there about if it does mean taking action and and some of the actions that have been taken in the past, uh, some of the protests that have, have gone forward, and there's been a joint between Indigenous and non-Indigenous on, on some of these things. Uh, the other thing that comes to mind is is the, the ability to sustain, sustain something. And, yeah. you know, you, you mentioned about politics and and, and when people see uh, a lack of response or that their actions don't necessarily have f- fulfilled something uh, yeah. it can tend to take the you know take the bottom out of it for them right and they think well what's what's the point yeah yes this is so important and it's something that really um, when you when you sit with people who've been working on struggles for decades mm. it's very helpful. Uh, and one of the things that I've learned from 
listening to some of those people um, has been this orientation toward taking our defeats mm. as the terrain for our next activity. Mm. Right. And also taking our successes as our terrain for our next activity. Right. Uh, and that gives you a sense of a long arc, right? Yep. So yep. we say we're, we have this, Martin Luther King said, we're, we're bending toward justice, mm. but it's a long arc. <laughs> sure. Um, and when you look at how long, how long people struggled sure. to have the knowledge of these graves exposed, mm -hmm. yep. how long people struggled to um, do away with forced schooling yep. um, and stealing kids from their families, you have to feel like that's the that's the only kind of gift you can give back to that. Right. And the other piece that comes out then, which I've been appreciating, Erica Violet Lee has been writing about this beautifully, is the absolute necessity of not rendering everything in terms of indigenous suffering and trauma, right? But actually looking at these histories and saying, these are histories of incredible resilience and a commitment to joy. Hmm. Right. Yes, uh, there are always uh, some silver linings if you look for them. So well said, uh, absolutely. It, the other thing, you know, that we're talking about these these graves and the, and uh, the the, the uh, uh, radar that is being used uh, for finding these unmarked graves and things. That that's just one aspect. You've talked about uh, the '60s scoop. You've talked about other things. The children being just taken away, and and there, you know, it's the the depth of the kind of um, policies that were put in place, uh, you know, that, that make it so difficult, I think, for a lot of people to understand or try to say, how, how do we undo this? How do we make it yeah. right? I wanted to hook into that feeling of overwhelm and how complicated mm. it is. Right. The thing that really I think is helpful is that feeling of like, as the more you learn, the more overwhelming it can feel. And you feel like, oh, I need to work on everything, or right. we can't change this, it's right. too big. Right. And it's true that no individual person, and not even any particular like small group of people, can change everything. This is woven throughout the entire fabric of this nation. Right. Um, so the thing that is helpful is for us to identify something that we have some connection with, mm -hmm. that we're, you know, that that we care about, and that we're. Um, yeah, we're, we're connected to it and work on that. Because mm. what tends to happen is people just are like, I don't know, you know, and, and they'll feel like, but if every, if every settler Canadian who felt terrible about this looked at the place where they are connected, they mm. will find something mm -hmm. that is involved with colonialism right now right. and with the inheritances of residential schools of the Indian Act, right? All of these things. So that might be, doesn't have to be that your church directly ran residential schooling. Mm -hmm. You might be part of a denomination that didn't. But what can you do in your church that um, supports current struggles yeah. or that um, tends toward repair? If you care about the environment, what can you do right now that supports land defenders? Mm. Um, so there's all of these different um things that we can do very much based where we are. And that is a way to fight back against that sense of overwhelmingness. You know, you say there's this big context 
but you're connected to something and you can work there. You can start there. And that is the only way I've learned. It's the only thing I've ever seen allow people to continue doing this kind of work for the long haul mm. and in a very ordinary, helpful way right. is to not try to solve everything at once, but instead find the places that they're connected to that they genuinely love and transform there. And that's how you build. That's how you have more people work with you and help you on it because they know you and they care too. Um, and that's, you know, that's really a good way that things have been transformed is through being in better relation. Mm, right. Alexis, a pleasure speaking with you. I want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, talk to us on Moment of Truth today about your article in the conversation entitled Amid More Shocking Residential Schools Discoveries, Non-Indigenous People Must Take Action. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to be here. Alexis Shotwell, professor at Carleton University, and she was my guest here on Moment of Truth today. I'm your host, David Moses, and that is our show for today. We'll see you again tomorrow. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.